You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Amen. If you will take your Bibles this morning, turn to Luke chapter 1. Good to see you this morning. Luke chapter 1 today. We're going to look at uh, the beginning of this chapter. Excited to enter into this uh, Christmas season with you and uh, looking forward to what God has for us. And um, I won't tell you who worked on the ceiling this past week, otherwise you may move uh, depending on who attached or detached what is above you or no longer above you. But I appreciate you focusing today. And I don't know if you feel closer to God or like you might meet God, I don't know, uh, depending on how the service goes today. But uh, it's been a busy week, and I just wanted to thank those of you who, yes, Brother Studer is sitting under nothing, I think. No sound? Okay, no sound over here, Pastor Dave. Can't, you can't hear me over there. I appreciate that you're not just falling asleep. You want to hear me. That's good. Um, Luke chapter 1 today, we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. Appreciate many of you that came in, and uh, we had about 20 years of dust that was spread around while we were setting up as well, and uh, it was just a busy week, a good week, but they're grateful to be back uh, in church this morning. Let's look, if you will, at verse 5, down through verse 7, and then we'll skip down to verse 11, down through verse 14, Luke chapter 1, and let's begin in verse number 5. As you're finding your spot there, we're starting a new series today called the Series of Advent, and we'll talk about what the word Advent is more in just a moment. But the subtitle of our series is A Study on Persevering Utterances of Christmas. And we're going to look at specifically Luke 1 and Luke 2 and some of the things that those who had waited so long for the Messiah said uh, when they got wind of the fact that God was on the move and in their day and in their time they were going to see it, all this prophecy fulfilled. And so we're looking at the first of those today uh, with these dear two folks, Elizabeth and Zacharias. Verse number five, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Notice verse 7, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. Go down, if you will, now to verse 11. And there appeared unto him, this is Zacharias, as he's serving the Lord in the temple, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Notice verse 14, And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. And so I want to begin today by looking at the advent of love. Advent of love. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us today. Father, thank you for the joy it is to be here today. Thank you for these dear folks, their partnership in ministry, and God, how you're growing and Using our little church, Lord, to represent you, we thank you for that privilege today. Thank you for guests you've brought our way. We pray that you would help us to be an encouragement to them, to share your truth and your love with them, and to allow you to draw them to yourself, whatever that next step is in their relationship with you. Pray that each of us would be open to your love, Lord, something that requires more than just our head, our hands, our feet. Lord, it requires us 
giving to you access to our hearts. And I pray that we would do so anew and afresh as we enter this season together. Help us to be open not just to you, but those you've put around us, both in this room and in our families and in our neighborhoods. And Lord, wherever you lead us these next few weeks, pray that our hearts would be open to you. Bless this time, be honored in how your word is preached, how it's heard, and how we each decide to live it out this week. And we'll thank you and praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been to a sporting event uh, where usually this is like in a law where, you know, it's the action is not going on, whether it's football, I'm thinking specifically of pro events, and somewhere in the law of maybe like the seventh inning type parts of a sporting event, there will be what is called the kiss cam. Do you know what I mean by this? We're not doing it today, okay, for the record. Just, I just thought of that. We probably, probably should have led with that. But basically the premise, and this, this of course started in California, sorry Josh, I had to mention that today, Brother Carney, but back in the 80s when they first came up with the big like jumbotron, you know, video monitors that now have become so commonplace in pro sporting events, kind of just to keep the momentum and some of the laws of those sporting events, they began to put up this camera feed where they would zoom in on couples who were supposed to kiss while the whole stadium watched. And uh, this is still going on. I, bet, I was just at a Cavs game a couple of, maybe a year or two ago, and I guess it was last basketball season. Our boys played, and then we watched the Cavs game, and they're still doing it, the kiss camp. What's interesting about that is sometimes the two people that the camera zooms in on don't know each other. <laughs> um, they're brother and sister. I mean, there are all kinds of things that come up in that situation where they don't know what to do, okay? There's this awkward moment of how do we handle this? Can I just say to you today, if, and I don't mean this in any way, in an irreverent way, but if the camera angle of, of our perspective this morning could zoom in on just you and God, are you strangers today? Um, are you just kind of next of kin? There's, there's some formal relationship. Or are you and God close this morning? May I say to you today, the God of love wants his heart to connect with your heart. He wants to be in close proximity and intimacy with you today and with me today. And for us to go into Christmas expecting for it to be everything that God promised it to be, not just the first one, but every subsequent one, without our hearts being open and close to him, I'm telling you, we're going to miss much of what he wants to do these next few weeks. And so I hope as we enter this Advent season that you will be open to the arrival and the renewal of love between you and God. One author said this, Christmas is not as much about opening our gifts as it is opening our hearts. And I just want to dare you, challenge you, exhort you today, give God a chance this Christmas. Give him room to not just enter an end, but to enter your heart in ways that he chooses. Now, I want to just introduce our series. We'll be looking at this today and the next three Sundays through New Year's Day as we talk about Advent. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word Advent. It's not something I'm as familiar with with my church background and upbringing, but I think it has some value to us and hence why we're studying on it this Christmas. I was reading an article the other day that kind of prompted this series. In fact, several months ago as I was praying on what to study this Christmas, and the author said this. Listen to this kind of summary of not just this morning, but our series as we study it. He said this, excuse me, once upon a time there was a season in the church year known as Advent. The word comes to us from the Latin for coming, so the word Advent means coming. The purpose of this season was to anticipate the coming of Christ to earth. It was a season that focused upon waiting. 
In fact, a lot of the early churches would actually fast and, and abstain from certain things as they prepared their hearts for the festivities and feast of Christmas. The author said this Advent has fallen on hard times, though, and he was speaking specifically to our type of church. He said, we Baptists tend to be particularly suspicious of anything that has its origins in the ancient or medieval tradition. And then he asked this question, why this displacement of Advent as a distinct season? Now listen to this. This is good, challenging. Perhaps it's because for believers, no less than for non-believers, our calendars are dominated not by the rhythms of redemption, but by the swifter currents of consumerism and efficiency. The microwave saves us from waiting for soup to simmer on the stove. Credit cards redeem us from waiting on a paycheck to make the purchase. And this backward extension of Christmas season liberates us from having to deal with the awkward fullness or lull of Advent, this waiting upon the coming. And so before the last unpurchased Halloween costume has made its way back to the warehouse, Halls and malls are decked with plastic holly and crimson ribbon. Thanksgiving provides only a pre-Christmas test on basting a turkey and tolerating relatives, and often that's our mindset. Listen to this conclusion. Perhaps because Christmas is about celebration and celebrations can be leveraged to move products off shelves, Advent is about waiting, and waiting contributes little to the gross domestic product. And then here was his assessment. In a religious environment that has fixated itself on using Jesus to provide seekers with their most convenient lives here and now, Advent is a particularly awkward intrusion. And then he gives this connection for us today. Advent links our hearts with those of the ancient prophets who pined for a long-promised Messiah but passed before his arrival. And so I think we need to learn how to pine, how to wait, how to long for all that God has yet to fulfill in our lives as he did in these folks. And so we're going to look at today the first of these who pined or waited and saw God promise, his promises fulfilled as they were faithful to wait. In verse 5 that we begin with today, you will notice that the context of this story is in the days of King Herod. If there is a, an antonym, if there is an opposite to the love that God offers us at Christmas, I can't think of a better example than Herod the Great. In fact, Herod was known to kill off any relative that he viewed to be a threat to his throne, his own children, his own uh, nieces and nephews and cousins and brothers. He was, he was a vicious, cruel man. In the midst of this, in a day of devoid of love, God enters and fulfills his promises, not just to Elizabeth and Zacharias, but also to us. So the question today is this, in a day of outright cruelty or superficial kindness, how do we open up our hearts and lives to be ready to receive a fresh arrival of God's love for us? Let's talk about today two areas in which we need to open up our lives to God's love that I assure you it's worth it to do so uh, with the Lord's help. Number one, let's talk about first of all, we see number one, when we open our hearts to God's love, it gives to us God's attention. Love is often spelled what? T-I-M-E. God gives to us his time. He gives to us his attention. Isn't it funny how at Christmas um, that we're homesick, even when we're home? There's just something poignant that it pulls out of our hearts as we get into this holiday season. You notice how the commercials become to, have begun to become very sentimental on TV, and everything's about pulling the heartstrings and 
I'm feeling homesick, but I'm home. I don't know why, but there's just this, this kind of bittersweet, this longing for relationship that this season evokes in us. And so here we see in these two, Zacharias and Elizabeth, some voids in their relationship that God in his love gave his full attention to. Let's talk about them in the time that we have. Number one, jot this down. Love comes, this love of Christmas, comes to attentively fill our barrenness. Love comes to to attentively fill our barrenness. Um, I don't know if you've interacted with my wife much, but she ran into some of her students last night, and I've watched as they give gifts. My wife is obsessed with gnomes. Do you know what a gnome is? G-N-O-M-E. Um, and the other day, I was standing at our, our kitchen sink, getting ready to wash my hands, and as I hit the pump, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Even the soap dispenser is shaped like a gnome. And so here's my profound thought that I'm working through. I think to keep my wife's attention as I age, I need to begin to look. Does that give you a, a funny visual image? Your pastor is a gnome. So if if a hat begins to cover my eyes and I grow this long, you know, whatever, and a big old snoz and all that goes with that. Um, she loves gnomes. Um, the other day, someone was talking about, you know you're getting old when Santa Claus is beginning to look younger as you move through life, okay? So whether it's, whether it's gnome-like or Santa-like, as we move through life, um, we age and all that goes with that. Um, On a serious note, you will notice here in the text this morning that one of the excruciating aspects of this barrenness in the life of Elizabeth and Zacharias was not just that they were barren, but they were well stricken in years. And it was the aging process, and it was, it, was, it was moving further into life as the shadows become longer and the, the opportunities uh, become diminished. In the midst of this, God attentively shows up to fill this barrenness. In verse 7, you will notice that they had what is the dreaded condition. Dr. Luke here, who was a physician, says Elizabeth was barren, not just barren, but she was aged. And so this barrenness of womb and of home, God was about to fill. Can I give you two things we see God doing to Elizabeth that he does for us? Number one, he fills us emotionally, emotional filling. Um, Look, if you will, back at verse 14 that we read a moment ago. And you see that this child, it wasn't just about John. We're going to get to, uh, in subsequent weeks, John was to be the forerunner of Jesus. So this, this filling of barrenness was a much more than just about objectively Elizabeth having a child and Zacharias having a child, but this was to be more than just a biological thing. This was meant to fill them emotionally. Go to verse 14, and you see some of these emotions listed, and thou shalt have joy. Where do we feel joy? That's in our heart. Uh, Number two, he says, uh, in gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. And so the love of God wants to fill the areas of barrenness in our life emotionally. Uh, In fact, the name John that's mentioned here means this, the favor or grace of Jehovah. God was going to fill the heart and the life uh, of Zacharias and Elizabeth with his favor and his grace that would move them emotionally. And so the coming of God is intended to move us on a heart level. One of the things I find as I move through life, and probably you do as well, is as you get hurt and broken and you're grieving and so many things that cause us to want to close off our hearts. We're not just closing our hearts off to additional pain and sorrow and grief. We're closing our hearts off to what God wants to give us and fill us with this morning 
and fill us with this season. And so being open to the emotional filling of God. You will miss Christmas this year, at least from God's perspective, if you don't open up your heart to what He alone can satisfy and fill you with as it relates to your emotions. I love the hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. You got room this Christmas for God. Are you so consumed with negativity, emotionally speaking, you can't hear him, you can't sense him, you can't feel him. You're going to miss everything God wants to do. All right, go to verse 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Number two, notice that Elizabeth is given a spiritual filling. So she is filled emotionally with joy and gladness, and others will, that will catch fire in the hearts of others. Number two, notice there is a spiritual filling. Uh, In verse 15, it says, this child will be great in the sight of the Lord. That's the ultimate level of greatness, being great in God's sight. And notice specifically this separation he would practice. He would drink neither wine, that's a reference to alcoholic beverages made from grapes, nor strong drink, that would be alcoholic beverages made from grain, that that he would abstain from that. Uh, I don't want to preach on alcohol or against alcohol today, but may I just say to you today, when your heart is not full with what God offers you will find things to try to fill it, right? It's amazing how many drink their way through this season because in them is a a void that they cannot fill, a a chasm that only Christ uh, can satisfy in. And so may we not look to these lesser things. May we allow God's Spirit uh, to fill us. And Ephesians 5 is clear on that. Don't be drunk with wine, whereas in excess be filled with the Spirit. The end of verse 15, not only was he... Uh, sanctified from those substances, but notice he is filled with the Holy Ghost. And specifically, notice the last phrase, even from his mother's womb. What does this mean? Um, Obviously, this cannot mean that John was saved or converted uh, from birth, that somehow he was a saint from birth, if you will. Uh, It alludes to likely God's Spirit was preparing him from the outset to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. The Spirit was with him. So if the Spirit is in John and John is in Elizabeth, then the Spirit is in Elizabeth, right? In a unique way that I would submit to you likely had never been experienced before. Um, The Holy Spirit was in her and filling her in ways that were unprecedented uh, in uh, the nation of Israel. And so we see this filling of God that was given spiritually. Um, Just to encourage you today, this is not unprecedented. Can you think of Old Testament gals or ladies that were barren, that God entered and filled them in some way? Um, We think of some of the mothers of men that God used, Isaac's mother, Samson's mother, Samuel's mother. God can take barrenness and in its place fill us with all that we desire, all that we could dream of. And the temptation we have this morning is to feel like barrenness is irreversible. If we were to interview Elizabeth and and Zacharias, let's say a week before this moment in the temple, I would think they would say something to this effect. We would use this expression in our culture, that ship has sailed, right? I guess now we need to hope for something less. We need to settle for, and the temptation is when we have barrenness to just say, this is just going to digress further. Can I remind you? The incarnation of Jesus Christ says, nope, there's always hope. 
There's always a way forward. There's always a way to be filled and satisfied with God in a very attentive way, in a very individual way, if we simply will keep our hearts open. You prayed for two families today. Ms. Tony Studer, her mother's battling some health things today and has been this week. And if you pray for the Groff family, Wendy, Ms. Wendy may be tuning in this morning via live stream. But a newer family visiting our church, her mom passed away unexpectedly last night. So if you pray for uh, the Groff family, be Wendy Corser is her, her maiden name, the Corser family. Um, but uh, I was thinking of her. She was just here a few weeks ago uh, on a Sunday night for service. And I, I, odds are, just knowing her, if her grandkids are able to serve in our kids' choir, our teen choir tonight, she probably would have been here tonight if health would have allowed. Do you know in this room there's all kinds of barrenness represented? Like if you just look around the room, there's all kinds of voids in this room. People we wish were here, things we wish were different in our life, things we wish we could still do and be. But as we look at that barrenness, can I encourage you, God is able to fill that void. He may not fill it with what you wish or who you wish was there, but I'm telling you, he's more than able to fill that space. But you've got to open the door and let him into that place. And our heart must be open to a God who loves us and a God who can fill the most barren spot, the most long barren spot in our soul, our life, in our family. All right, let's talk about a second area that we see this love being so attentive in, and I love this about the story. Go back to verse 5. So he talks about these two folks, and then notice his description of them in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Number two, jot this down. Love comes to attentively remove our reproach. So it comes attentively to remove our barrenness. Number two, it comes to remove our reproach. There was an interesting story out of the UK uh, just a few weeks ago. And obviously, my brother having served there, we were there just in June of this year, um, where teenagers are protesting that they're uh, environmental activists. And the newest thing that they're protesting is milk, milk that comes from cows. And so they'll go into stores, they'll just walk up to the, the coolers, they'll take out jug after jug and just start dumping it all over the store. In the aisles, on the counters, the cash registers, protesting all of the emissions caused by the dairy industry um, and just raging and, and resisting that. And, and just that's the newest thing. And they were talking about how the dairy industry contributes more to emissions than uh, even fossil fuels, et cetera, things of that nature. The outrage, trying to shame us into not having that cup of milk maybe that you drank this morning or, or yesterday. You know that reproach is a powerful powerful tool, a powerful weapon. And one of the challenges in life is not just the barrenness that we suffer from, listen to me, but how others interpret that barrenness. You can't be right with God if you don't have that in your life, if you're not able to do that, if you're not able to still whatever. And they begin to make judgment calls based upon the barrenness in your life. Can you imagine Zacharias and Elizabeth where family was everything in this culture and the chatter behind them as they would walk by a group of people? Yeah, there go those two old codgers who something's off with them and God because they can't have a child. And I love that God goes to bat for them in this story. And God tells the, tells the world what he thinks of them and says, let me correct the record here. 
And notice his description of them that we just read there. They were both righteous before God. They were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And so we see God going to bat for them. Notice two things that God does here. Number one, there's a vertical removal of reproach. There's a vertical. He, he clears the air about the assumptions made between these two, Elizabeth and Zacharias, and himself. Um, you may want to jot this down, the name Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias means Jehovah has remembered. That's interesting that that is the meaning of his name. And Elizabeth's name means my God is an oath. So God has remembered is Zacharias's name, the meaning of it. Elizabeth's name means my God is an oath. And the idea would be they knew God remembered them. They knew God had committed to them and they trusted him and they obeyed him. And as they did so, God eventually removed the reproach that was cast upon them. While many around them would have said their barrenness was an indicator of issues with God, here God lovingly validates their character and their commitment before him. On your own time, I would encourage you to go to Matthew's genealogy of Christ, and you, it goes through the different folks that are mentioned that are a part of the family tree that led to Jesus Christ. And there are several that shock us, aren't there? There's a harlot listed there. Um, Ruth, a Moabitess, is listed there, and the list goes on of, of different ones that were a part of the family tree. You know one of the most shocking ones is that Judah, who was the son of Leah, was the tribe God chose to bring forth um, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I was reading the other day, someone talked about that idea. He said this, Rachel, not Leah, was the beautiful and loved one. All right, Rachel, who was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel, not Leah, was the beautiful and loved. Yet God made Leah, not Rachel, the foremother to, to the Messiah, Judah, and then this conclusion, God accepts and uses those that the world rejects. Don't you love that about our God? That the ones that, that are reproached and maligned and criticized and marginalized, that often through them God expresses his love and affirms the relationship that he has with them. And so this vertical removal of reproach. God said, no, they're right with me. He was willing to affirm that. All right, go down to verse 24, and we see a second thing that he removed in this area of reproach. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, this is what she was saying in her heart, thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me, notice this, to take away my reproach among men. Number two, there was a horizontal removal of reproach. He removed the reproach from those around Elizabeth who made certain assessments and conclusions and um, assumptions about her. And here we see God removing the reproach. You know, there's nothing that soothes our heart that's reeling from criticism and doubts and questions from others when, like when God just says, nope, they're good, and I'm working through them, and he, if you will, is the one that is our defender. He is the one who is affirming us. God does that for this dear woman, Elizabeth. The God with whom you and I have relationship with today longs to remove our reproach. Where are you trying to run your own, own PR campaign that, that divine love longs to take over in God's time and way? Would you let God be your defender? Would you let God be the one that, that defends and protects you when others question and doubt you. So kind of this concluding thought, and then we'll move to our second main point today. You know the song, O Come All Ye Faithful? That, that song, O Come All Ye Faithful, 
um, joyful and triumphant is the first few words of that, that hymn. A gentleman recently said this, O come all ye, and he's talking about maybe considering that hymn, O come all ye faithless, joyless, and defeated. Christmas is for the weary, for the messed up, for the broken. And then I love this, if your life isn't inst- Instagrammable, Christmas is for you. And there are a lot of people in this room, our lives don't look so great. And there's a lot of big gaping holes and barrenness in our life. Christmas is for people like us. Aren't you grateful for that? All, all the voids and gaps, we don't need a prosperity gospel to fix our problems. We just need to let the Christ who has already come dwell with us sweetly and intimately. And in that place, everything is what uh, it should be. And so Elizabeth and Zacharias find this truth in their own family. All right, number two. Let's talk secondly about, and I love this part of our study today, the affirmation of Advent love. The affirmation of Advent love. If you go back to verse 14, you will notice that it says there at the end of verse 14, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Verse 16, notice the beginning of the verse, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. So this this thing of God's love to Elizabeth and Zacharias wasn't meant to just be for them. This is key today. God gives us his attention and love so that we can in turn affirm to others the fact God loves them too. And God's going to work in their life too. And so we see this happening uh, in the life of this dear lady, uh, Elizabeth. Um, This summer, as we were getting ready to go uh, over to see my brother in England, and the queen, by the way, we had some standing appointments with her as well. I'm just kidding. Um, we, We had a little bit of a layover in New York City and so we, before we left, and so we went to Central Park. Any of you ever been to Central Park in New York City, or a few of you? Um, it's a very, like, eclectic, there's all kinds of artists, and it's just like what you see in the movies. I'm not kidding. There's little, little boats you can get out and paddle and all this stuff, um, birds, and it's really the only place that in this urban setting you can get kind of away from the city a little bit. It's also where a lot of crime happens, so that's just me, my cynical view of things. Um, but there was a, we were sitting there just kind of watching where they were launching the boats into the lake that you see in the movies where couples are lost in each other's eyes as the guy's trying to figure out how to row the boat. And we're just kind of watching this as they're sliding the boats into the water. And, there, and all of a sudden, there, we saw different artists. You know, they would do like, um, you know, uh, different paintings and things. You could sit for a painting and they would do it and then you'd throw a few bucks to them or whatever. But there was this little, little uh, Asian boy who came off to our left sat down, opened up his violin case, and he just started playing. It was the sweetest thing. He probably was like maybe 10, something like that. And he opened up his case, you know, to collect any money folks would throw in there. And every time they would drop something into the case, he would bow, but he would keep playing. And so just as they, and he just, and after a while he played, it seemed like the same two songs over and over, okay, because we sat there for a bit and ate lunch, uh, just kind of over his shoulder, Landon, I think, went up and put some money in the, in the case, and he bowed. Um, I don't know if you've been in that setting where you got a street musician and you throw in some money. The other day, I heard a guy who said this. It's been kind of a strange day. First, I found a hat full of money on the sidewalk. Then I was chased by an agri- angry man with a guitar. I mean, what, what happened, you know? <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it funny how we can make everything about us? Here, here's the challenge this morning. If we're not careful, we take the love of God and we just soak it all up. And that's why it shrivels up and dies in our hearts, in our homes, in our lives, and in our churches. Because the love of God is meant to first remind us God has attention for us, 
but then we're to turn and share it with others. And I love that Elizabeth does that uh, in the story. Let's go on, if you will, to verse 41. And we don't know exactly why Mary comes to Elizabeth, but remember, Mary gets the news. We'll talk about her in subsequent times in our study of this series. But Mary, as soon as she gets news, where does she go? She goes to see Elizabeth, right? And if you will, notice in verse 41 what happens as she comes into the house of Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe, this is John, now in her womb, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Number one, jot this down. We need to love, or love, the love of God comes to affirmatively celebrate others' callings. To affirmatively celebrate others' callings. Elizabeth here is going to model some behavior, loving behavior, that affirms the calling that God had for Mary uh, in uh, her life and in her womb. Notice two things she has here. Number one, there's a passionate celebration. She, she blesses her. She celebrates her. In fact, look at verse 42, and she spake out with what? A loud voice uh, and said, Blessed are thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And so she offers a passionate blessing, a loud voice. You know what? The love of God should warm our hearts and stoke our passions, not just privately, but listen to me, publicly before others. Do you think Elizabeth was, as my mom at least would say, on cloud nine at this point, inside? I mean, think about how long she had waited. She could feel the baby kicking and moving in her, and then the baby really gets excited when her cousin comes, and she hears of what God's going to do, and she doesn't keep that inside. She, she lets that out. She lets it be felt and seen and sensed by others. One of the things I love about Christmas in, in its purest sense, I know a lot of it is consumerism and marketed-driven type of things, don't you love that Christmas always almost brings us into, as one author said, a conspiracy of the whole world in love? There's just, we're nice, a little nicer. Bought a cup of coffee for the guy behind me at the coffee shop or whatever the specific thing you've done or had done for you. But it kind of enlists us in this conspiracy of love. Are we doing that in our sphere of influence? Do others love God and sense God's love more because of how you're processing it, how you're stewarding it? Um, that's what we see Elizabeth effectively modeling for us. All right, if you would then go back to verse 41 that we just read. Notice there is, secondly, number two, a testifying celebration. It's, it's moving in her as the Spirit begins to, to move in her heart and in her womb through John, and she expresses this now. Look at verse 44. Verse 44, we'll come back to verse 43 in a moment. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. She testified of what God had done in her. So the manifested love of God in our lives is not just intended by him to be hoarded by us, but to help and to encourage others. Um, our family has got into some new ministry things this year and, and just was gone this past weekend again for a wellness weekend. And I've been so encouraged by those who have let me know in this church, especially our deacons and others, they see God blessing that ministry. Here's just my question to you. Who has been encouraged in the call God has for them in their life through you? Um, where you, you affirm, hey, God's, God loves you and God's going to work in this situation. Mary desperately needed to hear from the lips in the heart of Elizabeth, what Elizabeth was willing to share with her. Listen, every Mary needs an Elizabeth. 
One who has felt the attention of God and the intervention of God, and they say it's for you too. Who is that person this year, this Christmas? Maybe they're going to be here tonight for our kids program, and if you would just love on them and let them sit where you normally sit or whatever you have to do to accommodate somebody else to hear and sense and feel God loves me. God needs that from us. God desires to do that work through us. And so Elizabeth was willing to let this celebration be felt by uh, Mary. I think in an excerpt view with Mary, if you were to say, who helped you the most? Joseph obviously did at the end of Matthew chapter 1. But I assure you, Elizabeth was on the short list. Without Elizabeth's influence, her steady, aged wisdom and processing and waiting, uh, Mary may have made some decisions or responses that later she would have regretted. And so we see this willingness to celebrate others' callings. All right, number two, go back to verse, 40, <laughs> verse, 41, or verse 43. And notice some very important things she says here in verse 43. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Number two, jot this down. Love comes to affirmatively displace others' doubts. Love comes to affirmatively displace others' doubts. So to celebrate others' callings, number two, to displace others' doubts. What can remove the doubts of can God, God can, that question, than having an old lady, sorry to be that blunt about it, who is six months pregnant, okay? That, that kind of shuts up a few things in my own mind of what's possible or not possible. Just the visual, let alone being able to, to, to hear from her and to process that. And so Mary here, God uses this to remove possibly the doubts in her own heart. In fact, if you go back to verse 36, you will notice that God gives this kind of linchpin that he can do what he just told this virgin he was going to do for the first and only time. Notice in verse 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was, who was called barren. And then verse 37, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Exhibit A of the statement in verse 37 was this gal, Elizabeth, listed in verse 36. Isn't that awesome? Can the God who loves others around us and can do the impossible, can they use us as an example? Can he speak through our lips in life that anything is possible with God? If your heart's not open to his love, you don't trust him, you don't believe in him, and you can't testify to others of what is humanly impossible, but is more than possible with God. Think about this. You have both extremes. You have an older lady that should not be able to have a baby that is, and you have a virgin, a young virgin. The spectrum, there, there's God's range of what's possible is well beyond what we consider possible. Are we willing to be that example and that exhibit uh, to those that God has put in our life. All right, two things. Number one, jot this down. Notice, first of all, a submissive displacement. How does Elizabeth help Mary root out the doubts? Number one, she is exhibiting an attitude of submission to the God who said, with God, all things are possible. In fact, I think Elizabeth had the clearest sight of what God was doing. Joseph, I think, was still a little confused by some of it. Mary's still processing it. But Elizabeth, with her wisdom and perspective, and what she says here in verse 43, seems to have the most clarity about what God is about to do. Um, have you ever wondered what a, um, what a famous person of, in history would look like today? Like if they lived today and didn't dress 
you know, back in the 1700s. This is what us nerds, history people think about. Some of you are like, I don't read books. I don't even know what you're talking about. I've never thought. I wonder, like if I could bump into, you know, someone that's famous from history today, what would be, you know, maybe their style or their look. Um, AI has been doing some interesting things, artificial intelligence, where they're taking old pictures and, and helping you process what that person would look like today. And this was one, you know who George Washington is, even for those of you who don't read books, does that name ring a bell? Yeah. Okay, good, that's good. Uh, there is hope, there is hope for you, okay? Here's the picture, this would be George Washington today. Isn't that a, like you can see the nose, you know, I won't have you pull out a dollar bill right now, but there is, there is some parallels, okay? Uh, you can see the, the face, isn't that, isn't that kind of interesting? If he was president today, it's possible that's, what uh, George Washington would look like. That's a modern-day presentation of him. You know what Elizabeth, think about this, she saw what was coming and who was coming. She saw it, and she testified of that to Mary. She encouraged him, she, her. She, she encouraged her about who and what was about to happen. And so we see this submissiveness. She identifies this is about the Lord. You don't see a tinge of jealousy well, you know, I just got the forerunner. She gets to have the Messiah. Um, th- there was a, a submission to God's choosing for her own womb and for the womb of Mary. She made it not about her. She didn't make it about a, a Mary. She made it about the Lord. It was about the Lord. And so the focus was where it should have been, a focus of submission. One of the things that causes those in our families, and our lives, our sphere of influence to doubt God more than anything else, listen to me, is we claim to believe in God and Jesus as Savior and Lord, but we make our own choices and decisions. One of the best ways for us to root out doubts in others is to submit to the God we claim to believe in, right? And there is a tendency to be duplicitous where there needs to be singular submission. Elizabeth was submitting to this Savior as Lord. She wasn't just focused on what she could get out of this situation. She was focused on placing herself under this Jesus. Um, And and some have misinterpreted verse 43, the mother of my Lord. I just want to say it today because we'll be studying this the next few weeks. It is not saying here that Mary is the mother of God in the sense that some would teach. Jesus had preexistence. Mary is, was, had a beginning date. She was the mother of his incarnate body, but she is not in the sense that some would teach the mother of God, even those who sincerely believe that. Scripture is clear that she was a finite creature. She acknowledged him as her Savior in Luke chapter 2 that we'll get to in a few weeks. And so this, this identification, this submission to the Lord who would come through the womb of Mary. May I say to you today, nothing will hinder the love of God this Christmas more than you loving yourself, making it about yourself, and doing your own thing. I think a question we should ask a lot this Christmas is every day, Lord, what what would you have me do? What would you have me say? Where do you want me to go? Checking in with him, taking our cues and prompts from the one it is all about. One author said this, Christmas is about God becoming flesh and the person of Jesus Christ. Everyone else in the story is a secondary actor. This Christmas is not about you. It's not about your family and you having everything nostalgically that you yearn for. It is about God in the flesh giving his love to the world. That's what this is about. 
Not your comfort and convenience and preferences and not mine. It is about him. It is about him alone. And so submission to him pushes back the doubts. All right, let's land today in verse 45. I love this affirmation that Elizabeth gives. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Number two, and lastly, there is an expectant displacement. There's a submissive displacement of doubt on the part of Elizabeth. There is an expectant displacement. A friend of mine, who I don't know if you have a friend or maybe you're this person. I have a few families in the church I'm aware of. I won't mention their names, the Moors, or I mean, oh, I said that out loud, who love Christmas, okay? And some of you have had your Christmas stuff up since whenever, okay? You're not willing to wait, you know, Advent style, but that's okay. Um, But a friend of mine posted this the other day, or several months ago. This has been actually early October. He posted this on Facebook. He said, I walk around like everything is okay, but deep down inside, I want to put up my Christmas tree. I just want to, okay? I act like everything's okay. That expectancy, I, I I can work with that. Looking forward to it. Are we looking forward? Are we anticipating what is to come? Or is this Christmas all about what's behind us? It's broken and ruined and we regret or we wish someone else hadn't done or did or some hole in our life that the past uh, is a part of? Are we moving forward? Elizabeth points Mary forward. She assured Mary that her faith would be abundantly rewarded. Her expectation would be fulfilled. She had not believed in vain. And he, she affirmed, she affirmed, She affirms, she affirms with this expectancy. One of the best ways that we can steward God's love properly is to live in practical expectation of its work in others' lives. Maybe God's not doing it in your life, but can't you believe he can do it in someone else's and support that and partner with that and encourage that person? Elizabeth was willing to do that uh, for the benefit of Mary. This is bigger than God's promises just to Mary or Elizabeth or just to us. This expectation is something God uses to grow us and warm us as we share in his promises together. The other day, somebody said this, all the promises of the prophets were carried on the shoulders of the one born in Bethlehem, and he fulfilled them all. Expectancy, expectant that God will fulfill his promises. All right, one last verse. Would you go to 1 John? 1 John chapter 4, and let's look, if you will, at verse 18. This love that God gives us that was born frees us. And we see this reference in verse 18 of 1 John, 1 John 4. And if you would please, verse 18. 1 John 4, verse 18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. And so we see that God gives us freedom from fear. What's the antithesis of love? It is fear. It is fear. And perfect love, mature love, cast out that fear. It reminds us of three perspectives. First, we're assured the Lord's love uh, is ours because his son was sent to die for me. Secondly, because I know that he indwells me. And thirdly, because I look to a future where he will come back for me. That's the promises, all that are ours, only because of the love of God. May I say to you today, I'm amazed by how many hymns and carols are still played in 
stores and cars and secular settings, and there's so much truth in them, gospel. I'm still grateful for the remnants of that in our culture. But I'm, saying, I'm telling you today, it's one thing for a generic song or scripture or other religious element to declare that God loves people. It's another thing for people in this world to know you and I who say, no, God loves me and God loves you. That's when it goes to the next level. That's when God enters that space and that heart and that life. Let's show you a little clip of a video that captures this well before we pray and give you a moment to reflect and respond. Before we do so, there's a song. We've sung it a few times in days gone by. I think Brother Josh maybe has done this as a special. Uh, when Love Was Born. And just listen to these few words. Bethlehem, through your small door came the hope we waited for. The world was changed forevermore when love was born. The love that God gives us through the Christmas story and all of its veracity and all of its truth and all of its content is something that has changed our world in ways I don't even know that we realize today. Can you imagine not having the love that we sense and see and should feel because of the, the story of Christmas? Can you imagine not having that? How different our world would be, how different our perspective would be. The world was changed forevermore when love was born. Now tonight we're having our youth choir program, our kids choir and teen choir and some of our adults serving in that. I invite you to be back for that tonight. But I came across this little clip, and I want to show it. And I'd like you just to think about it. I know it's a bit sentimental. might evoke some memories in your heart. But think about this in your relationship with God. All right, let's watch the little video, and then I'll bring this to conclusion. that cute? What did she want to know? She wanted to know if her family was there, right? Did you notice at the beginning of the clip, there's a shadow of the one holding the camera waving, the one who was there to watch her, that she saw that connection, the tears, the movement. Can I tell you today, Christmas tells us that God is there watching us. We have his full attention today. He wants to, through us, affirm his love to others. It's that real. It's that palpable. Do we see that this morning? Are we moved by that? And are others that we influence moved by that? Not bitterness and jadedness and cynicism, but the love of God shed abroad in our hearts to everything and everyone that we touch. God gives us his attention this Christmas anew and afresh. He sees you right where you're at with all the pluses and minuses, your shortcomings and others, your struggles, other struggles. He loves you today. He knows you. He sees you. And number two, he wants to affirm his love through you as you're faithful to him. Here's the question we'll pray. Will you choose to open your heart this Advent to the coming love of God who is fully attentive and fully affirming? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today.